so um, it's Luke chapter 23, um, starting at verse 13, and in the Pew Bibles, that's uh, page 1061. So um, Luke chapter 24, uh, beginning at verse 13, page 1061. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you to the team very much indeed. Lovely to see you. Thank you for being out tonight and uh, hope you've had a good day. Uh, our book for today, we've been enjoying singing tonight and we love the hymns that we've been singing and somebody who's been helping us uh, sing uh, in a recent generation is Keith Getty and this is Keith's latest book called Sing, How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family and Church. Uh, he starts off in quite a nice way. 
um, where he talks about his, his uh, own family. And he says uh, this, we are all singers. We may not be very good singers, but we're all created to sing nonetheless. Um, the psalmist says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And we know that's from Psalm 139. We have three young daughters, and it has surprised us with each of them how they could sing simple melodies with mumbled words, uh, like phrases such as, oh, sing, happy Luya, and a bizarre mixture of holy, 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 and twinkle, twinkle, little star. Well, there we go. That's the start of his book. And he says, why, why have I written this book? For five reasons. To discover why we sing and the overwhelming joy and holy privilege that comes with singing, to consider how singing impacts our hearts and minds and all of our lives. Three, to cultivate a culture of family singing in the home. Well, I don't know how you would get on with that, but good luck. Fourthly, to equip our churches for wholeheartedly singing in the Lord and an expression of unity. And fifthly, to inspire us to see congregational singing as a radical witness to the world. Who would like to read Keith Getty's latest book, on singing, you can have it for free. First hand up. All right, Martin, there you go. And uh, Angela, I, I saw your hand up there and I happen to have two copies, so there we go. And as you know, uh, with the free books that uh, go out each Sunday night, the only requirement is that you pass it on so somebody else and uh, enjoy that as well. Great. Uh, worship really is the reason for which we've all been created. So even when we're looking at the scriptures tonight, it's to, to turn our hearts and our minds to worship, to worship the living Lord. And uh, we can sing that, we can pray that, we can live it in our lives. So, all right, we're going to look at uh, uh, chapter 24 of Luke uh, tonight to this uh, wonderful passage which Mark read to us of the uh, encounter on the Emmaus Road. But I, I wonder if I can uh, just ask you to turn to John 19 for one second uh, for, for a reason. John 19 uh, verse 25. Uh, and it's the, the story of the crucifixion. That's page 1088. Uh, John 19 verse 25. Do you see after uh, uh, the dividing of Jesus' garments in fulfillment uh, of, where is it, Psalm 22? Then near the cross, verse 25, of Jesus stood his mother, that's Mary, his mother's sister. Did you know that Jesus' aunt was at the cross? We, we, we just sort of um, bypass that, don't we? Okay, so, so Mary was there, uh, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay, now Luke doesn't tell us who was with Cleopas in the story of Emmaus. Is Cleopas Clopas? Was the person who was with Cleopas Mary, his wife? What do you think? I only made that connection when we were on the walk of witness on Good Friday. And uh, somebody read this passage just outside our, our church building and it just sort of clicked with it. That's exactly who it is. 
And I was very excited about that. And I read um, um, Tom Wright, and he agrees. So Tom Wright, the professor of New Testament in St. Andrews University, uh, agrees with Frank Steller that uh, Cleopas is the same person as Clopas, and that Mary, his wife who was at the cross, was his companion on the road. Now, we're not told that in Luke, so okay, Tom Wright and Frank Seller are not God, but I, I simply commend that to you as a thought, because it's with that in mind that then I wrote uh, tonight's sermon. Um, and I'm going to try and tell the story in, in, in a, a first-person uh, format. So uh, it's with that in mind we turn to Luke 24. It was the most incredible day of my life. I'll never forget it, ever. For one thing, I walked about 14 miles in a single day. Uh, for another, I had a roller coaster of a ride emotionally. From the depths of despair to the heights of heaven, from the disappointment of disillusionment to the most glorious joy that transformed my life forever. My name's Cleopas, and I'm married to Mary. Mary is a good friend of Mary and Mary. Um, maybe I should explain Mary is quite a popular name in these parts. My Mary is a good friend of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and of Mary from Magdala. That's Mary Magdalene. Mary and I live in a wee village a few miles north of Jerusalem called Emmaus. Uh, she and I had uh, been in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. Every year we go to Jerusalem, uh, for our major Jewish feast, um, and this year was no different, except it was. It was very different. Usually it's the time Jews, including ourselves, go up to the temple to remember how God helped the children of Israel escape from slavery in Egypt and God passed over our sins by seeing the blood of a slaughtered spring lamb upon the doorposts of homes. But this year we saw more blood than we bargained for. We witnessed a sight that will remain ingrained in our minds for all time. Our religious leaders didn't like Jesus. We did. Both of us are related to him in a funny sort of way. And we knew what he was like. Incredible. A man of God, if ever there was one. A prophet. When he spoke, it wasn't like anybody else. It was with real authority and with power. And when he spoke, he backed it up by what he did. He healed people. He delivered poor, demented souls from evil, demonic forces. He fed people. He taught people. He even raised people from the dead. He was like nobody else I've ever met before. But as I say, the chief priests and the scribes didn't like him. I think he made them feel threatened, and they handed him over to Pilate, Caesar's representative who handed him over to that fox called Herod, who mocked him and ridiculed him and scourged him before giving him back to the Romans to kill him. I can't begin to tell you how awful that was. 
Jesus was so good and the Romans so cruel. Not only did they beat him, but they used a form of execution so terrible I can't hardly begin to describe it to you. In front of the crowds gathered in the city for Passover, they made an example of Jesus by making him carry a huge wooden cross up the hill from the place where he had been sentenced to another hill outside the city wall. And there they held him to the ground while they banged great nails through his hands and through the sinews of his feet and hauled him high before banging the cross down into a slot, hanging him there naked for everybody to see, for people to curse. My Mary was there. She saw it with her very own eyes, and that's not something that any woman should have to see ever. She was at the foot of the cross with Jesus' very own mother. Can you imagine that? And Mary's sister, and with Mary from whom Jesus had cast out many demons. It was as if the very hordes of hell descended upon his shoulders and crushed the very life out of him as the clouds turned black and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. Well, it had. It had finished. All our hopes and our dreams, all our ideas about a Jewish Messiah bringing to an end the yoke of foreign oppression, that was gone. Instead of overcoming them, here he was overcome. And so was my Mary, overcome by grief. Well, we just wanted home. We wanted out of that place. But since Emmaus is more than a Sabbath day's journey, we had to wait until Shabbat was over. That morning, some of Mary's friends went to anoint the body. A rich man called Joseph from Arimathea had offered his own tomb for Jesus to be buried in. And so some of the women who had followed him from Galilee went to give the corpse the dignity in death uh, he had been denied uh, earlier on. And they went to cover his body with spices and perfume. Early in the morning, they went to the tomb, but instead of finding Jesus' body, uh, they encountered a vision of angels, angels, who said he was alive. But others who heard this just said that the women were talking nonsense, traumatized, delirious. Well, Mary and me, we started walking home, and while we were walking, we were talking. There was so much to talk about, so many thoughts, uh, so much trauma and confusion and not a bit of disillusionment. If Jesus was God's son, why did he have to suffer? If he was the Christ, why did he die? And what were we to make of this talk about him coming back from the dead? And as we were talking, somebody walked up and joined us. I wasn't sure where he had come from, and neither was Mary. 
what, he asked, are you discussing as you walk along? Well, we said, we're talking about all the things that have been taking place over the last few days, and he said, what things? Well, I was a bit sharp, I suppose, in my reply, but we were feeling a bit sorry for ourselves, fragile and a bit morose. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on? And when he looked bemused, Mary added, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. And then it was his turn to be a bit blunt back. You're a bit thick-headed, he said. A bit slow to take things in. That was a queer gunk. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets wrote don't you see these things had to happen, that the Christ had to suffer before he would enter into glory? And then this person did something I've never experienced before. He started to explain the scripture. So way back from the book of Genesis, taking us right through the prophets and the rest of the Bible, showing how every story, and I mean every story, points to the suffering Messiah. Actually, if I'm honest, it was the very first time in our lives that the Bible began to make sense. And some parts of it just leapt out at us and shouted, this was how it was meant to be all along. Will it give you just a little bit of an insight into what he said? Now, I won't be able to remember it all, but for example, he took us back to the book of Genesis, and he started off, you know the bit where after Adam and Eve rebelled, and their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked, God spoke, and he said to Eve, one of your offspring is going to suffer terribly during to, due to the poisonous bite of a venomous snake. But if it's bad for him, it will be worse for Satan because that will be the cause of his ultimate demise. And the stranger said, that's the Christ. That's who was being spoken about. And then he took us to the book of Exodus and to the story of the Passover lamb whose blood was spilled, the, the innocent uh, for the, the guilty. And then he took us to Joshua, who set his people free, and Numbers, uh, where uh, he, he showed us that the rock that was struck in the desert uh, from which water of life flowed uh, was talking about him. And then he took us to Deuteronomy, which says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. Listen to him. And then he took us to the Psalms, which tell us many times about his sufferings and death and resurrection. And then to Isaiah, uh, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and call his name Emmanuel. And he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was like people turning away from him, despised and we did not value him, oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep 
silent before his shearers is dumb. He did not open his mouth. And Zechariah, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David, and the residents of Jerusalem will look upon me, upon whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. And then he took us to Ezekiel and Daniel and Malachi, the son of righteousness, who would come again in great power and glory. As I say, one by one, the stranger just talked us through the Bible. From Genesis to Chronicles, it was the most amazing, heartwarming experience I've ever had in my life. In every single book, he pointed out to us what the Scriptures had to say about himself. Well, the time just flew by. Two hours felt like only a few moments, and when we arrived home, the stranger went as if he was going to move on, but Mary said, no, don't go. Come on in. It's nearly dark. I'll prepare something for supper. And so he came in, relaxed a bit, and Mary brought out the food. She set it on the table, and while we were there, he took the bread and that was something familiar, uh, and he gave thanks for it. And he said, our praise to you, eternal our God, sovereign of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And as he began to give it to us, our eyes were opened. I tell you, we had been so blind. How was it that we hadn't been able to see the person who was there was none other than the risen Lord Jesus. Was it the way he handled the bread? The way he broke it? The way he offered it to us? I don't know. Maybe it was the scars. But there was something we'd never, ever seen before. Yet how right before our very eyes, Mary looked at me, I looked at her, and as soon as we recognized him, he was gone. He disappeared. And we were left looking at each other, our cheeks aglow, our hearts enlarged, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And even though we hadn't yet finished supper, and even though it was dark, and even though we had just walked all that distance home, Mary and me got out of our seats. We returned at once to Jerusalem and found the 11 disciples and those who had gathered with them and said, it is true, he has risen. And what Simon said wasn't rubbish because we have seen him with our very own eyes. We have heard him with our very own ears. He spoke to us and he has broken bread with us. Well, that's not just a story about Jesus walking with Cleopas and Mary immediately following his death and resurrection. 
This is the story of the crucified and raised Jesus walking with his disciples now by the power of the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus do it then? And how does he sustain the believer's faith now? Three ways. Firstly, by revealing himself in the scriptures. In a world where there is so much that is wrong, in a nation where there is so much that is not good, in a community where there is so much pain and agony and trauma, Jesus makes himself known in his word on every page. In other words, Jesus isn't simply an add-on. He isn't an additional extra away at the end. His DNA is from page one to the very end. Jesus is God's number one purpose for this world in all its trauma and difficulty and need. And so for a sustaining of our faith, all we need is Him. What we have in the Bible is not what most people suppose. A list of do's and don'ts, a book of rules and regulations, but a story about a person who invites us into a living relationship. When Jesus talked with his disciples through the Bible, it was so that he could walk alongside them and, yes, to explain their misunderstandings as well. So, for example, Cleopas and his companion thought that Jesus had come in order to redeem Israel from their suffering. But here Jesus walked alongside them in their confusion, in their doubt, and in their pain, and showed them that Jesus had come to redeem his people through suffering. That wasn't what they were expecting. But when Jesus explained that he was there alongside them, then they saw it. It warmed their hearts and transformed their perspective. And Jesus still makes himself known to us through his word, through the scriptures, through the Old and New Testament, not as a legalistic rule book, but as a relational handbook. He says, I'm walking with you, not to take you out of your difficulties, but to walk with you in the middle of them. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you your troubles to bless and work for your good through your deepest distress. 
Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 how God walked with Adam and Eve, but they didn't want to walk with God? Instead, they walked away from God. Well, here we find Jesus walking with this other married couple, Cleopas and Mary, alongside them, breaking the curse of this breakdown of fellowship that had led to Adam and Eve's exclusion and brought them back into fellowship with him. Jesus explained how by the cross, redemption had been brought to his people, not from suffering, but through suffering. And so the reading and the explaining of the Scriptures are the ordinary means through which we, as the people of God, hear Jesus speak. Two, God sustains our faith as we walk with Him in prayer. Now, again, there is nothing rocket science here. But here in this encounter, we are affirmed in this most remarkable thing that Jesus draws alongside his confused, upset, sorrowful disciples and encourages them to talk. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for unburdening themselves, for telling him their experiences. Jesus doesn't condemn them. He listens to them and permits them to express to him their doubts and their fears, their confusion and their pain. And then in turn, he trains them to listen to his voice. and recognize that it is him speaking back to them. So prayer isn't preparing carefully sanitized words to say. It is, yes, being honest with Jesus, being real with God about the issues of life and of death, of suffering and of disillusionment, and then having the ears to hear what he is saying back, communicating in return. How does God sustain our faith? Through the gift of conversation, two-way communication, prayer. Is this too simple? But it's not. This is just what we're given. And what's the third means by which Jesus makes himself known to his people? And the answer is through community. Sharing meals together. Next week, we'll be giving opportunity for for people to invite others into their home that they wouldn't ordinarily have, hospitality. That is part and parcel of what it is to be community. And sharing meals in Bible times was even more significant than for us. 
It is more than simply eating food. It was experiencing fellowship, offering hospitality. Um, that's the reason, I think, why the feast for the returning prodigal was so offensive to the older brother, because he saw the significance of this incredible hospitality that was eating together. So here, Jesus eats with Cleopas and Mary. He enjoys fellowship with them. He enjoys community. Here is hospitality. Do you remember the first meal recorded in the old creation? The woman took and ate the forbidden fruit, and their eyes were opened to a world of rebellion and sin and death because suddenly she and Adam realized they were exposed, naked before a just and holy God. Well, here in this first meal recorded in the new creation, what does Jesus do? He breaks the bread, and the couple's eyes were opened. They were open to a world of relationship, of love, of forgiveness, of hope, of new life. The curse of the old Adam of broken relationships was restored as the new Adam took on himself and in his own nail-scarred hands the sin of the world and God's people were redeemed not out of suffering, but through suffering. And this is what being a Christian is all about. Walking with Jesus. Finding not rules and regulations in the Scriptures, but a relationship with Jesus that warms the heart. Communication with him about our hopes and our dreams, our sorrows and our pains, talking with the Lord Jesus in what we call prayer and listening to his voice in return. And through the community of faith, where together we partake in bread and wine and enjoy one another's company, we experience hospitality and fellowship and communion. Let's pray. Our Father God, how, how we want to complicate our lives and how you want to simplify them. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus is more keen to walk alongside us than we are to recognize his presence with us. But it is our prayer, our Heavenly Father, that this coming week, 
we will be conscious of that relationship which makes all the difference in our lives, in our thinking, in our outlook, in our perspective, in our living, in our sharing, in every aspect of our beings. So, gracious God, thank you for Jesus. And thank you that he draws alongside us even now by the power of his spirit and continues with us. We bless you. We praise you. We give you our honor.